Let's turn together to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, and in a few moments, we're going to take on together the parable of the great banquet. Now, have you ever been stung because you did not get an invitation that you had hoped to get? Maybe it was back when you were applying for college and you hoped to get an acceptance letter from a particular university and it never came. Or maybe something less than that. Maybe it was just a a party, some gathering you hoped somebody would invite you to be a part of. Others got the invitation. You didn't and you felt left out. It stung you. Or maybe it was just a cafeteria in middle school and high school. You, You had a table that you wanted to sit at where maybe some of the cool people were and you hoped you'd be accepted there, but you were not, never got that invitation. Well, today when we come to this parable of the great banquet, we're going to see that God has offered to you the greatest invitation imaginable. And it is offered to you. And the big question is, will you say yes to that invitation? And so that's where we're going. But the Lord has some lessons for us on our way to that big ultimate question. So let's go in together right here at the beginning of Luke 14, verse 1. One Sabbath... When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Here's our setting. Jesus is in the home of a ruler, a leader among the Pharisees on a Sabbath day. He's been invited for dinner. But we see immediately this this was not a warm invitation They didn't really want Jesus there for his companionship. Notice Luke says they were watching Jesus carefully. This was another trap that they had set. So you can sense the tension even as we get going here. And there's a man there with a condition called dropsy. I didn't know what dropsy was, so I had to look it up. So dropsy was a condition dealing with the lymph nodes. It caused swelling in the body, obviously quite painful. And this man is there. Now, why is he there at this gathering of the Pharisees on the Sabbath? This also part of the setup to get at Jesus. This group of Pharisees already annoyed, even angered at Jesus because on previous Sabbaths, he was known to actually heal people of their diseases. In these Pharisees' minds, with all their traditions, they had added to the old covenant. They somehow had come to think that this was a work that you're not to do on a Sabbath day. This was no violation of the old covenant. There's no law against helping people on a Sabbath. And so here Jesus asks a question. He recognized the setup. They're watching him carefully. This sick man just happens to be there. And so he asks a question. Is it lawful to heal on a Sabbath day or not? The Pharisees wouldn't answer. Jesus really wasn't interested so much in their answer anyway. And so he tells this man to come and he prays for him and heals this man immediately of his terrible condition. Imagine it. What a beautiful miracle on that day. A man who had been sick for some time. Now, instantaneously, he is well. And in this healing, Jesus gives us our first lesson this morning. And it's this. Jesus gives us a lesson in mercy. A lesson in mercy. So here, Jesus could have said, look, 
People are going to be unhappy if I heal you today. I'm just going to have to wait till another time. Jesus would have none of that. This man's in need, not waiting till Sunday, not going to wait till a weekday. We're going to heal you right now. It's a lesson in mercy. Are you a merciful person? Are you ready to step toward needs or are you one who maybe looks for a technicality? I'd like to help, but I kind of wouldn't want to help. And if I can find an excuse not to help, that would be me. Or do you fear what other people might think? If I get involved in that type of ministry and help others, what will people say about me? But mercy is to be a mark of God's people. We learn it from Jesus right here. Totally not concerned about what other people think. Going to meet the need that's right in front of me. So in recent months, we've been troubled by a lot of things in the world. It was a number of months ago when we saw Afghanistan collapse and so many people who had helped uh, our government and others had to scramble out of the country. They were marked men and women and children, and so they fled. And we knew that many of them would be here in the United States. And we've been praying for a family that we could minister to coming out of Afghanistan. And in these recent days, God has given us a family that we've begun to get to know and to minister to. And it's off to a wonderful beginning. But, but we have mercy and compassion toward people who've had to flee everything with, without any of the things that they would normally have. And so we're just stepping into that. Simultaneously to that, aren't we burdened for what's happening in Ukraine? We hear about now over 2 million people displaced, fleeing for their lives to get to somewhere where there is safety. And, and so we're, we want to respond to that. Let me remind you to be praying for that. One of our members sent me an email this week about disabled people in Ukraine. I had not even thought about them. My heart was already broken for just everybody trying to get out. But imagine being physically disabled, needing the care of others. How do you move? How do you get out? Your caregivers might have had to flee with their families and you're there behind. And just so many things to stir us with the mercy and compassion of Christ. And so let me remind you to pray about these things. Don't just hear the sad news, but pray and then find ways to express mercy. And one of the ways we've been learning about is send Relief, that Southern Baptist humanitarian arm working hand in hand with the IMB already at work there in Poland and Ukraine. Uh, you can give to that. There's a link to that on our website. It's just what we do here. We see it modeled in Jesus. He's going to heal this man no matter what anybody else thinks. So a lesson in mercy. Notice here with me next, there's going to be for us a lesson in humility. A lesson in humility. This takes us to verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a, to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus here now instructs them in humility. You know, Jesus just healed the man. He has the floor. People are interested in what he might say next. And what he chooses to say next is to really call out something embarrassing that they had all done when they arrived. These men had sought the seats of honor in this Pharisee's house. Now, they probably did it very subtly. They thought where nobody would notice, probably out in the courtyard before they ever got in. They're thinking, I hope I don't get a bad seat. 
I hope I don't get one of those seats that's lowest. I want to get in there. So they probably chatted and everything, kind of maneuvered their bodies to get in there first and then go scurry and get in the best seat there. Jesus saw it. Jesus knows their hearts and their motivations. And he calls out that embarrassing act of pride as they try to exalt themselves. Now, a little bit difficult for us to apply this in our minds because at first, because we think to ourselves, we don't really have seats of honor in most of our places. So in your house, you probably don't have a seat of honor at the table unless perhaps it's the head of the table. Right, And normally, the leader of the house sits in that seat customarily. You might put a child there if they're like in a high chair and both parents need to kind of be there, all hands on deck for the child. But normally, it just would be odd to put a child at the head of the table. I know if you invited me to your house for dinner and I'm standing, there's usually that little awkward moment, where do you want me to sit? I'm never going to go for the head of the table. Now, if you tell me to sit there, I'll go there, but I'll leave me thinking, shouldn't you be? Shouldn't you be here? It's just one of the customs that we have. Another moment like that where I'm trying to be careful is at weddings. So I get to go to a lot of weddings. And, and so uh, there's, the, there's the reception afterwards. And if there aren't name cards there, I'm a little bit concerned that I might one day sit at, at, a, at a head table, right? I don't want to sit where the bride and groom are supposed to sit. Wouldn't that be embarrassing, sir? Um, groom sits there. You, you, you get out of there. Or if the family, the wedding party's there, I don't want to accidentally get there. So usually you just kind of hang back. Where's that microphone? Let me get far away from that. I don't want to accidentally be where I don't belong. In Central Asia, where we once lived, uh, they had a seat of honor for you. So if you were a guest in somebody's home, the host had his place, but they would always seat you in the most honored place. And that was the seat farthest from the door. That's how they did it. You, if you're a guest there in their home, you're going to go farthest from the door. That is the honored seat. Now, in a Jewish setting, and that's where Jesus is, even in the home of a Pharisee, they would sit around a low table, a low rectangle table. They'd have cushions around that table in a U shape. And so their host would have his seat. And the most honored seats would be on the right and left of the host. Everybody knew that. If you're on his left or right, you are the most honored. And then every other seat had less honor than that. The farther you got around that U-shaped seating arrangement, you were less honored. And so these men, knowing that, knew that they, they would find out where they stood by where they were seated. So they knew, where, where do I stand in the social order? How am I estimated here? It was by where they were seated around that table. And so because that was their culture and because they were full of pride, they jostled for the better seats. Again, very embarrassing. And Jesus called them out here. So Jesus teaches them, listen, it's better if you go into any situation where there are seats of honor, don't take it. Go to the lowest seat you can find, and then maybe the host will say, you don't belong there, let's move up, rather than be shamed in front of everybody being asked to go down lower. Now, the point of this is not a scam or a tactic. Here's how you can fake humility. And with your false humility, you might actually be given the seat you wanted all the way along. That's not the point of this lesson. Jesus is teaching that you should actually be humble, that you should put other people's preferences and their wants and needs ahead of your own, that you should be humble, stay humble, be selfless, that you and I should be totally unconcerned with our social ranking. We should be unconcerned with our status or any recognition. Verse 11, quite powerful, hear it again. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus repeated that a number of times in the Gospels. Hear that again. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's strong. And that same principle echoed throughout 
the New Testament. How about this one? James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter spoke the same way, 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you weren't already motivated by the words of Jesus here to be humble, to keep yourself in a humble state, give preference to others, then when you read this, that God is opposed to the proud, man, I want nothing to do with pride then. Even though that's our human tendency to put ourselves up and exalt ourselves, if, if you tell me that God's opposed to the proud, I want to retreat from pride. I don't want God opposing me. So the idea is this, if you won't humble yourself, then God may choose to humble you. He'll do that for you to get you in that place where you and I really need to stay there. Now, the ultimate way that you will humble yourself is, is to acknowledge your need for Jesus to be your savior. When you say, I, 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 I now understand, I'm not worthy of being in heaven with a holy God. There's nothing I can do to make myself righteous in his sight. So I'm going to need him to save me. That's your ultimate and first move of humility. I can't save myself. Jesus, you're the holy one. You died for my sins on the cross. You were raised from the dead. I, I want to follow what your scripture says. I want to believe the gospel. Trust in you that I might be brought into your family through your work, not my own. So we acknowledge that we owe everything to him. We bow our knee, we bow our minds, we bow our hearts, we surrender everything to the one who is now our new Lord. And so here in our text, we had a lesson in mercy as Jesus heals the man. We've had here a lesson in humility, but now we see a lesson in generosity. A lesson in generosity. Look with me now, verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus says to the host that invited him, hey, you really... You should invite some additional people when you have your gatherings. Don't just invite your relatives. Don't just invite the rich people. Don't invite the dignitaries. Once again, he's teaching mercy here, even generosity. Not saying you can't have friends over and have those types of gatherings, but you need to expand to invite people into your life, into your hospitality who are disadvantaged. People who could never pay you back. They could never have you over but that you would actually do something kind for them that they could never repay. Isn't it another way that we seek status by trying to surround ourselves with people who maybe seem successful, they seem beautiful, they seem cool. If I can put myself in those circles, it makes me feel good about my status. In fact, we learned that this happens quite early in life. It's, it's part of our sinful nature that the elementary school teachers among us can tell you this starts early. This starts as early as kindergarten, maybe even earlier than that, where kids size up pretty quickly. I don't know how they know, but they can tell who the cool kids are, who the in crowd is. They just size it up and, and people want to be in it. And many times they're shunned from the cool group and already there's a pecking order that gets established. It's quite pitiful, but we don't leave it behind there. It's still in our sin nature to, to feel like, well, my status goes up if I'm around the people that seem to have status. And Jesus says, that's all backwards. You're thinking wrong. 
But we might protest, well, what am I going to get out of it? If, I, if I'm hanging out with the ones he describes here that can't offer me anything, I'm associating with the lowly, what am I going to get out of it? He said, oh, you're going to get something wonderful out of it. You're, you're blessed. Notice what he said. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When Jesus comes, he's going to reward you for taking in and loving other people that the world has rejected. Do you see the values of God? We're to be merciful. We're to be humble. We are to be generous in loving other people. So, so what are you doing in your life to, to try to minister to and be with people who are hurting, people who are lonely, to, to expand your love and acceptance of them? So for us here, first of all, a mercy lesson, also a lesson in humility, a lesson in generosity. And now we come to our parable and the Lord's going to give us now a lesson in urgency, a lesson in urgency, particularly how urgent it is that we respond to God's invitation into his kingdom. Now, Jesus is going to teach this parable in response to this. Look at verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So here's one of the Pharisees there, and he's just speaking with confidence. Well, I know I'm going to be there in the kingdom of God. I know I'm included in that number, and it's going to be wonderful to be among those people. And to that guy, Jesus tells this. Look at verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry. And said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Again, that's what Jesus said. To the guy who said this, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. A guy assuming that if anybody belonged in the kingdom, he did. But Jesus here is telling us again, he's the one ushering in the kingdom. And this kingdom, I love it, described once again like a meal, a banquet. Back in chapter 13, verse 29, talked about the kingdom of God like being reclining at his table. So let's remind ourselves, you can be in the kingdom of God if you respond to his invitation. You come to Christ, you can be in the kingdom of God. A kingdom that he describes like a banquet, like a feast, like a celebration. But here in the parable, didn't Jesus tell us that people get the invitation, but they don't want to come and they start making up excuses. The first excuse is this one. Hey, I bought a field and I need to go check it out. So I can't come to the banquet that I told you I would come to. Jesus gives an example of a lame excuse, of a false excuse. Now, a person would never buy a field that they had not already examined. You just wouldn't do that. We don't do that today. You wouldn't have done it then. Jesus gives this really, really bad example. I mean, a great example of a bad excuse here. 
but we do this sometimes in our lives as well. There, there are oftentimes, there's the real reason we don't want to do something. Then there's the reason we say to other people. Now, if we have integrity, those two things need to be the same. And we, we cannot lie. But, but we find ourselves sometimes in a predicament like that. What if you told somebody, I will go to your wedding, but you didn't know there was going to be a big time football game on the day of that wedding when you said, yes, I'd come. You find out it's a big rivalry game, UVA and Virginia Tech on that day. And you think, I don't really want to go to the wedding now. So you can't come out and say there's a football game on, right? So you'd be trying to think of some other thing to say that, and if you're Christian, you think, well, it's got to be true. It's not the real reason, but it's a true reason. Again, we don't want to play that game. What we really ought to do in that situation, let me take the game. I can miss the game. This wedding is only going to happen once in a lifetime. I, I need to, I need to be there. Somebody don't tell me the score of the game. Reading about some other lame excuses online, I read about a bride who was, was perplexed by this one. She invited a lady to the wedding. The wedding was three months out, but she got an RSVP. No, I can't make it. And here was the reason the person offered. Well, my cat just had surgery. And so all summer, I need to really stay with my cat. And so the, the girl wrote online about this. Like, I can't imagine that you couldn't leave that cat at any point over three months period of time. This is not an out-of-town wedding. You just, can you not give a couple of hours? <laughs> Clearly not the real reason she's not coming to the wedding. It was just the excuse that was given. So Jesus gives one of those lame excuses here. I would come to your banquet. Thank you for the invite. But I bought a field. I got to check it out. Here's another lame excuse Jesus gives here. And this one, I bought five yoke of oxen and I need to test them out. Again, nobody would do that. That's a major investment. These 10 large animals. And uh, you would have tested them out. You would have made sure they were worthy to buy beforehand. Just, just a person saying, I don't want to come but I'm going to tell you some other reason. And then this one, this one tugs at our heart a little bit. We think, is this one real? Where the person said, I can't come because I married a wife. But that's also a lame excuse. This isn't an invitation to go off to war. There was a provision in the old covenant. If you married a wife, you'd have a year. You couldn't be sent off for battle like that. But this is a banquet. You'd be back the same day. You, you mean you can't be apart. So it's just another lame excuse there. I want you to notice with me here, as Jesus tells the parable, the host was not pleased with any of the excuses. As Jesus tells the story, the host sees through how bad each of these excuses were. It's a reminder for us, when we have excuses that we present, why we're not going to trust Jesus, why we're not going to follow God, God sees through those just the same way. These people in the parable, they got the initial invitation to come. And then on, on the day when everything was ready, then the servant went back out. So remember, in those days, no text message, hey, it's time. No email, hey, it's ready. The servant goes out and lets people know that, that invitation you got that you said you'd come, now it's ready. Now's the time to come. They did not want to come after all. So there's some application here, first for the original audience and then for us. First of all, let's think about that original audience, that household of Pharisees and Pharisees' friends all gather around there. Jesus spoke this to them in their Jewish context. He's speaking to the Jewish people first. They were the first on God's guest list. His people, Jesus being Jewish, and you know, his first disciples were Jewish. He's, he takes the gospel, the good news first to the Jewish people. That was the plan all along. And thankfully, some believed, but massively most Jewish people were rejecting him as the Messiah, the religious leaders lining up against him, as we know. And so this parable is actually to them. As they reject, this gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. Listen to how R.C. Sproul, a scholar, described this. He says, Jesus warned them that God is angry 
that he's going to bring destruction upon Jerusalem and the Jewish nation, and he's going to turn to the Gentiles. He's going out to the highways and the byways to bring those people into the kingdom of God, who at this point are no people. This is what the prophet Hosea predicted. Those who are not God's people would be called his people. Gentiles were invited into the kingdom of God only after those who were kinsmen, according to the flesh of Israel, refused the invitation. Gentiles were not children of Abraham. They were strangers to the kingdom of God. But then God found them in their blindness, crippledness, and lameness, and invited them to come to his feast. Those to whom the invitation was originally given are shut out. Jesus gives this sober warning so that the presumptuous Pharisee who glibly assumed he had a seat reserved in heaven would understand. And so, yes, we are glad that even in our own congregation, we have Jewish Christians. They understand Jesus is the Messiah. Overwhelmingly, though, uh, most of us are non-Jewish. We are Gentiles. And this gospel intended first for the Jews and now also to us, there is that application of this. But what about for the rest of us here today? Maybe you're here today and you grew up in a Christian family. You grew up hearing the gospel regularly. You were made to come to church, a church like this, and you heard every week an invitation to repent of your sins, to believe in Jesus. But perhaps up to this point, you've never done it. You say, I, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to respond to that invitation. Well, listen, you've been invited into the kingdom of God. You've been invited by God to be his. God initiated this. He's offering to forgive you of all your sins. He is inviting you into everlasting life with him. It's an amazing offer. It's amazing grace. But why haven't you responded? Maybe like in this parable, you have your excuses and you've offered them to God about why not. I've just tried to imagine what would the excuse be that you wouldn't take such a grand invitation from God himself. Maybe your excuse is this. My friends would not approve. I might lose my friends if I actually gave my life to Jesus. Well, Jesus countered that one back in Mark 8, 38. Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Paul spoke this way in Galatians 1:10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So would you be willing to reject the kindness of God just to please your so-called friends? Would you reject the salvation of God and instead experience the wrath of God just to make your friends happy? Listen, today is the day that you should accept God's invitation to come into his family, to come into his kingdom. And listen, bring your friends with you. That's the mission. Stop following them away from Christ, but lead them to Christ. I love the old hymn that said this, I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, I still will follow. I love the line in there too, where it says, no turning back, no turning back. So maybe friends have kept you from accepting this great invitation. No longer let that be true. Or maybe it's your family. You want to please your family. I've met people through the years who say, you know, my mother is a staunch, and insert denomination here, insert religion here. My, my family's really staunch in that my mother would really be upset if I actually converted and put my faith in Jesus, got baptized and started attending there. So I, I, just, I just can't do it. 
And that's sad. And of course, I love that desire to honor parents. Even as we get older, that's, that's a good impulse, but not if it keeps you from trusting in Christ. Not if it makes you give it as an excuse not to come into the wonderful kingdom of God that God's inviting you into. Maybe, maybe your family's not religious at all, and that's the issue. You come from a proudly secular family. Your whole family always had disdain and ridicule for people of faith. You ridiculed the Bible. It's part of your family identity. We're just smarter than those Christian people. And now you realize that he is the Messiah, that you should trust him. And yet you're thinking, I don't, I don't want my family upset with me. Oh, don't let anybody keep you from Jesus. Again, bring them with you to Christ if they'll come. Years ago, I made a visit to Tajikistan to visit some friends and they introduced me to a young woman who had suffered a great deal for her new faith in Christ. She had come out of the majority religion of that place and trusted Jesus as her savior. Her family was very, very unhappy. They were angry. They actually took this young lady and sent her off to the village where her uncle was a religious leader there. And there in that village, the uncle beat her, trying to get her to turn from Christ and go back to the majority religion. Well, I met her some months after all that. She had healed up from that beating. And I got to meet a radiant young woman who loved Jesus. Even, even that type of hatred from family didn't dissuade her from loving and following Jesus. She was hanging in there with a beautiful joy in the Lord. Let nobody keep you from trusting and treasuring Jesus. I'm just trying to think what would be the excuses why somebody would not trust in Jesus. Maybe it's this one. The culture won't understand. This might cost me. I might get canceled in some way if I actually begin to follow Jesus faithfully. But really, would you fear more the wrath of the culture than the wrath of God? Don't turn away from his forgiveness. Don't turn away from his salvation because of them. Again, the words of Jesus, Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The only other excuse I could think of that a person might give, and I'm sure there are others, but maybe this one, I'll do it later. I'll, I'll trust Jesus later. I'm too busy right now. And what we're really saying, because God can see through that excuse that really Jesus is just not that important to you, that everything else is more important. I'll get around to it. I'm pretty confident I will one day. I'll probably accept that invitation. But listen, that's just a rejection. And the Lord can see through that. In fact, let me, let me ask you this. What's the greatest sin in your life? Why do you need Jesus to be your savior? We all have countless sins and makes all of us in need of a savior. But wouldn't this be at the top of the list? To come to know this invitation that God himself would forgive your sins and adopt you in his family, give you everlasting life. And to hear that and go, don't want it, not important enough to me. Now you can move that to the top of your sins, the most grotesque of all your sins, to hear that invitation and say, I don't want it for any other reason that you might give. So, so I want to ask you today, if you've been kind of in that hesitation of, I don't know what I'm going to do, maybe one day I'll do it. I want to put the question to you like this today. Right now, would you repent of your sins and ask Jesus to be your savior? In other words, would you respond to his invitation? He's saying to you, I would forgive you of everything. I will bring you into my family. I'll go and prepare a place for you that you could be with me forever in heaven. I'm offering that to you if you'll repent of your sins and trust in me. So there's your choice. Would you ask Jesus to save you? Would you accept his invitation? Then there's only one other choice. Would you be bold enough to say, no, I won't do that. I reject this invitation and I'm not coming back to it. Would you do that? Because there's no middle ground. There's no such thing as I might, maybe I sort of, you know, that, the Lord sees all that. That's an absolute rejection. You may not have another moment to make that decision. So today I urge you 
Put your faith in Christ. Come into his kingdom. What he describes as coming to a banquet. Recently, I listened again to a song by Sidewalk Prophets, a Christian band, and it beautifully expresses really this parable that we just heard. Now, I love you too much to sing a solo. So uh, there are others in the church far more gifted. I like my voice to blend with yours. So I will just read these lyrics to you. Maybe you can YouTube it later. Come to the table by Sidewalk Prophets. It is a beautiful song. Listen to the words. We all start on the outside, the outside looking in. This is where grace begins. We were hungry, we were thirsty, with nothing left to give. Oh, the shape we were in, just when all hope seemed lost, love opened the door for us. He said, come to the table, come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior, sit down and be set free. Come to the table. Come meet this mighty crew of misfits, the liars and these thieves. There's no one unwelcome here. That sin and shame that you brought with you, you can leave it at the door and let mercy draw you near. So come to the table. Come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Sit down and be set free. Come to the table. Listen to these. To the thief and to the doubter, to the hero and to the coward, to the prisoner and the soldier, to the young and to the older, all who hunger, all who thirst, all the last and all the first, all the paupers and the princes, all who fail, you've been forgiven, all who dream and all who suffer, all who loved and lost another, all the chained and all the free, all who follow and all who lead, anyone who's been let down, all the lost, you have been found, all who have been labeled right or wrong. To everyone who hears this song, come to the table. Come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Sit down and be set free. Come to the table. That's the invitation of our God. He's inviting you to be with him, one of his own. Don't resist him any longer. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus. And then one other point of application. Many of you already have trusted Jesus. But there's a word for us also in this parable. As Jesus has that servant of the master going out and inviting people, inviting people. And people are saying, no, I got better things to do. No, no. That could make you discouraged if you're out there inviting people to Jesus and you're hearing that. But what did the master say? Keep going. Go to other people. If these people are rejecting, don't let that dissuade you. Go to others. I'm calling others to myself. Go and do it. Years ago, when I was a pastor in Alabama, I made it my goal to visit every home in a certain radius around our country church. And in a rural setting, you can do that a little easier, just knocking on doors there, house to house. And, and I found that many of the people were just politely indifferent. They'd heard the gospel dozens of times in their life there in rural, rural Alabama. And I remember it was a time when we were sensing again, God was calling us to go overseas as missionaries. And I can tell you that reinforced it when it just didn't seem right. When these people are hearing the gospel dozens of times over a lifetime and just don't care. And then there are people overseas in other countries who've never heard the gospel once. I think God's using this as another way of saying, go, go to these people. But I do have this word that was encouraging. In October, we were back in Alabama. I preached the 100th anniversary of that sweet church where I pastored right out of school. And a man came up to me there while we were there. And he said, you know, you may not remember me, but you visited my home when you were here as pastor all those years ago. He said, and I didn't come then. But in the years since, I did come to Christ and started coming here. I was happy to see, man, as a deacon in that church, serving the Lord, really one of the key servants in that church to this day. So let's not give up. Let's keep sharing the gospel. Even if we don't get to see the fruit, let's keep sharing this good news. Would you pray with me?